This week is Parshas Chukas. Chukas means the law of, or the decree of, or the edict of. And it begins by talking about the really bizarre, inexplicable mitzvah, to, uh, inexplicable to us, mitzvah of the red cow, the red heifer. And the broad strokes of it is that if a person comes in contact with a dead person, they become impure. We already saw that a couple of weeks ago in the parsha. And there are certain parts of Jerusalem or the temple or in the wilderness, the Mishkan, the tabernacle, that they're not allowed to go into. They're not allowed to give sacrifices, for example. We read a few weeks ago how there was the two Pesachs, Pesach 1 and Pesach 2. And the reason why that had a backup Pesach is because there were some people that had been contaminated, uh, had come in contact with dead people, and therefore they were ineligible to participate in Pesach 1, and they had to have a makeup date, a rain date, to make up for those people uh, who became pure subsequently, and they can make Pesach on Pesach 2. And the process of doing that is really strange. You take a red cow that's unblemished, it's perfect, doesn't, has never worked in the field, so you never put on it a yoke. It's entirely red. It doesn't have even two white hairs or two black hairs. Uh, now, the phenomenon of a red cow is actually, it's not so rare. You see them in Texas all the time. The Texas red cows that came from Spain. What is rare is to see a red cow that doesn't have any little bit of white or black. It has to be totally, completely red. It's actually more of like a burnt orange. You take it, you slaughter it, you burn it, you have a huge mound of ashes, you mix the ashes with this whole potion, you take some water, you take various amounts of um, twigs from big trees, from small trees, you throw it all into the fire, and now you have this potion, and you're going to take a little bit of this uh, potion mixed with some water and sprinkle it on the person who's contaminated with a dead person twice, once on the third day, once on the seventh day, and they're done. That's the broad strokes. Now there's some more details, like for example, what's really bizarre about this process, uh, not just the imagery, it's really, really, really kind of out there, uh, but what's also strange is the fact that the person who actually sprinkles, he, has, he himself has to be pure. And he's rendering purity onto the recipients. But this process actually renders him impure. So it's this strange thing that it's a conveyance of purity, but the result is that there's actually impurity being garnered to the deliverer of the purity. So there's a lot of strange things. And the way the Parsha starts off, and in fact the name of the Parsha, Chuka. That's what's in a chukas. It's the name of a certain kind of law. There's a mishpat. There's different kinds of different names for laws. But the word chuka, which means a decree or an edict, that refers to a law that is, it's, that, it's like a decree. You don't, you, know, you don't understand it. You know, we, we, it makes a lot of sense not to steal, not to murder, not to rape. Those things make sense to us. But to not, but to have this bizarre mitzvah, at least bizarre from our perspective, there's nothing we can do to try to understand it or understand it fully, it's called a chok. And Rashi, first Rashi tells us 
that this is the mitzvah that everyone laughs, laughs uh, at us about. The Yetzirah says, well, this is so strange. Uh, the non-Jews look at us really strangely. And what's the reason, says Rashi, and that's the theme of, the, of, of, of this mitzvah. It's a decree from God. It's a time where we say, we don't understand it, we are just accepting it because God tells us, and that's it. Of course, there's many mitzvahs that we do understand, but there's a whole section of mitzvahs, and that section is actually uh, typified, it's, it's, it's embodied by this mitzvah, this, this, this section, this law, the red heifer, is always presented as the prototype, as the archetype of a chot, of a mitzvah that we can't understand, and there's some benefit to that. You know, the Talmud tells us, for example, a person should always accustomize themselves to say, I don't know. There's a certain benefit of a person realizing their limitations. You know, the fact that God is beyond our capacity to understand, uh, that should be self-evident. But the human condition is that we like to attribute genius to ourselves and also to look at everything within our own perspective and our own limitations. Well, we're limited, God's not limited. Faith is when someone realizes the vastness and the awesomeness of God and the fact uh, that God is beyond us. And it's just mind-boggling to think that, for example, you know, that you're here and you have a trillion some odd cells within you and then there's you know, a trillion species on this planet, and there's a trillion stars in our galaxy and a trillion galaxies. Like, kind of those kinds of thoughts to think about kind of how small you are compared to God is a very powerful thing. And, in fact, the commentaries point out that part of the ingredients for the red heifer is a really small strand of grass, a really small blade of grass. Really, really small. And a second ingredient is a part of a cedar tree, a really tall tree. And it's kind of showing this dichotomy that we're really small, uh, but we really, and God's really big, but we sometimes think that we're really big, and here we're told, okay, this is something that is on God's wavelength, it's totally beyond us, uh, or at least full comprehension of it is totally beyond us, and we have to accept it as is, and that's actually very, very beneficial in helping us achieve our end goal. If we want to achieve our end goal, to become people that are submitted and subjected to God and not the Yetzirah, that our ultimate power is the Almighty, to do that, we have to realize, we have to come to terms with the fact that not everything we can understand. And there, there is a certain benefit to say, we're doing it because God told us to do it, and no other reason. That said, we're going to try to explain as much as we can. Uh, so let's let, let let's let's start with a more broader idea. We mentioned this a few times in in the preceding weeks. The idea of impurity again, it's 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 um, sort of like a corruption of the software of our soul. You know, it's kind of hard for us to think about what is purity, impurity. You look at someone, and you look at they don't look, they don't look they don't look different. Uh, they're not ill, uh, but they're impure. It's entirely on a spiritual realm. So the consensus understanding of impurity is that it somehow relates to death. So for example, there's impurity linked to um, contact with a dead person. Obviously, that's a connection with death. 
there's impurity that relates to a seminal emission or other kinds of emission that could have resulted in life. Um, a, a menstrual uh, emission. Again, there was potential for life. That's Dian. Um, even a woman who has a baby becomes impure, quote-unquote, because, well, she had life before her, within her, and now she doesn't have that. And of course, the baby hopefully is alive and well, but the woman herself is now less life than previous. And we like life, we embrace life, and death is, is, is the, you know, it's the worst kind of blemish out there is the fact that we die. You know, and Adam, we're told the sources, pre-sin, Adam, before he, before he sinned, was really destined, the, the destiny of, of humanity was to live forever. You know, our soul lives forever. It's only the body that dies. So why do we die? We die because we're associated with the body. So in essence, the idea of death really harkens back to the fatal flaw of humanity. And that is that we're not just a soul. We're not just an angel. We're like an animal as well. We're not just an uh, angelic soul. We're also an animalistic body. Like that is the fundamental flaw of humanity. And that is brought to bear at death. Right? The fact that those two separate and, well, the way you're currently constituted, that, that, that is discontinued. And therefore, to really understand what is the remedy for the problem of death, the red heifer, someone themselves cannot have any association with death. So to kind of bring this full circle, and I'm trying to say a few different points here. We're told in the Talmud, Moshe understood the red heifer. Everyone else did not understand it. In fact, even King Solomon he prayed so hard to have it, un- to understand it, and he was even wiser than Moshe, but he couldn't understand it. And the reason behind that is that so long as someone themselves suffers from the terrible malady that is the fact that they're going to die, and they ha- that death has a grip on them, they can't understand fully the red heifer, because that's the opposite. Moshe, Talmud tells us, he buried himself. That's a way of saying that Moshe himself was not subsumed by the malady of death. He became like a soul, entirely like a soul. Uh, if you want to see some more sources about that, Maimonides, there's a source Maimonides says he became like an angel. There's a source in the Midrash at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, he became like an angel. There's a source in Ramchal, in Lutzato, uh, he became like an angel. There's this idea that Moshe was able to shed the influence of his body from him. He was able to, so to speak, undo whatever Adam did to bring them to that point. He became like Adam pre-sin, and he was destined to live forever, and therefore when he died, he buried himself, so to speak. He didn't quite die. So you ask the question, Moshe says, he's able to go up to heavens and argue with angels. How, how, who, how can a human argue with angels? Well, if human is an angel, and we all are, at least if we isolate our soul, it's just we have other stuff as well. <laughs> We're an angel that became corrupted. So Moshe became like, an, he removed the corruption, so he restored himself to being totally an angel. He goes up to heaven and is able to argue with an angel as a peer. Moshe spends 40 days without eating and drinking. Well, every human body needs to eat and drink. Well, angels don't eat and drink. And Moshe 
became like an angel, restored his soul to the pre-sin of Adam's level, and therefore Moshe is able to not need food. He's an angel. He's a soul. He doesn't need food. And it's, it's interesting, you look at Moshe. Moshe, he, put on, he puts on a mask to speak to the people. Well, what's this idea of a mask? The idea of the mask is that it's an artificial body. Right? A body is a clothing for the soul. Moshe undid that, so to speak, and now he's talking to humans, and the humans are looking at an angel, and they don't, they're not able to have interface with that. And comes on Moshe, and he's like, okay, I'll cover that, just like the body covers the soul, I'll take something artificial to cover my soul, an artificial body, and only through that prism uh, can Moshe talk, to, can the people have a connection with Moshe. Moshe is more comfortable talking to angels than he is talking to humans because that's more natural the way he's currently constituted. Therefore, Moshe, who has conquered death, so to speak, he's the one who is able to understand this idea fully. Now, as we proceed here, there's a connection made between the red heifer, the red cow, and the golden calf, the gold baby cow. And um, the sources tell us that Rashi Raj brings it down over here, and I think it's in verse 22, that these two are intimately connected, uh, and he gives an example. He says that suppose you had a, a female servant in a, king, in, a, in a palace, and she's there in the quarters of the king, and she's with her little baby, and the baby, he soils himself. So what does the mom do? The mom comes along and cleans up the mess. Similarly, the golden calf, the baby cow, well, he, so to speak, soiled in God's palace, so to speak, amongst the Jewish people. Well, to undo that, you have to come along and bring the mother the red cow, and have her clean it up. That's what Rashi says. Again, I'm going to kind of look at this on a little bit of a deeper level. Talmud tells us there's this deep, intimate connection between what Adam, what happened with Adam and what happened at Sinai. Talmud says, for example, when the sin of Adam, I don't want to get too much in detail with that because it's, I just want to pull a point there from there. The sin of Adam, there was a certain degree of zuhama. Zuhama is, is corruption or defilement that was placed into humanity. There's different names for this. We could call it the Yitzhah. We could call it the inevitability of death because they're the same thing. And that was, you know, the shift that happened with Adam pre-sin and after Adam post-sin. So everything that happens to Adam afterwards, he gets kicked out of his wonderful place because he's no longer eligible. He's not a member of the club anymore. He's kicked out of that because that's a kind of a spiritual world. And he is no longer spiritual exclusive, and therefore he has to move into the hybrid world, the hybrid physical spiritual. At Sinai, Ten Commandments, that defilement, that corruption was removed from the people. And that lasted for a grand total of 39 days. When they said the golden calf, again, that was foisted upon them. It's, the sin of the golden calf is a, is, is a repeat of the sin of Adam. 
And then once again, we are, the Zuhama is reintroduced into the people, and we are now have the same, we're back to square one. And again, comes along the red cow, and that's fixing that. Okay, so what's, so what's the relevance of this? So I, I think this is actually really important to understand big picture. We talk about Torah, and very frequently we talk about the details. And there is a myriad of minutia, of details, of small, specific elements of mitzvahs and Torah and Jewish philosophy and Jewish theology and everything like that. When we talk about these ideas, we're talking about the big picture. What's the ultimate objective of Torah? In fact, there's a critical verse here in verse 14. Zos HaTorah, this is the Torah, and it, just, it kind of recaps the episode or the theme of the red cow. But the way it introduces is, this is the Torah. What it seems to imply is that there's something fundamental to all of Torah that is on display over here. And perhaps we can say, uh, given what we have just learned, is that whatever happened with the, golden, with the golden calf is the opposite of what happened with the red heifer. And indeed, the objective of Torah at large is to mimic this transformation from the golden calf to the red heifer. So if we understand that, we could get a clearer picture of what the objective of all, of all Torah is. So the golden calf, the idea of it is that it, it had a relationship to idolatry. How that relationship works, all the, all the sources have their own way of saying this. So for example, the Ramban, he says that the reason why the Jewish people did the golden calf is because they wanted to isolate one of God's characteristics. We know God has characteristics, but God himself is one. And that's why whenever we pray to God, for example, we don't pray to God's kindness or God's mercy or God's benevolence or God's uh, resistance to getting angry quickly. We pray to God. And the critical flaw, says Ramban, of the golden calf was the fact that they made a golden calf. The calf represents God's judgment and they kind of isolated part of God, and they wanted to look at that separately. They wanted to worship, so to speak, not God as a single unified entity, but God's characteristic as a separate idea. That's what Ramban says. And that, of course, is idolatry. Idolatry is where you start to parse up God and start to say, okay, well, here's the sun. The sun is God's wonderful star. And it started off, Maimonides tells us in his introduction to laws of idolatry, that the genesis of idolatry was actually noble, where the people said, well, God created so many wonderful things, the stars and the sun, and all that is so wonderful because it regulates life over here. Okay, let's, it's only proper for us to accord them some honor. Well, that's the mistake. The second you start according honor to God, not God himself, but either God's mitos or God's handiwork, very quickly, you're going to forget about God himself. Therefore, that is, so to speak, this soiling that happened with the golden calf. And the mother of the calf, well, what's the mother? A mother is the origin of the baby, right? When we made a mistake and we said that the golden calf, that's something on its own, 
forget about God for a second, let's talk about God's characteristic, well, we bring back the mother. We're demonstrating that everything really stems from the origin, from the source, from God. Thus, the red heifer itself is, so to speak, exactly undoing the mistake, the misdeed of the golden calf by saying, let's go back to the source, to the mother. Uh, and additionally, when someone does something blind, we're told, red heifer, you don't understand it. And no matter how much you try and how much you think and how clever you, your intellect is, you can't understand. Motion is to find he's the exception. By doing that, that's the ultimate act of faith. That's where man says, I am acting in accordance with what God wants me to do, and I don't know why I'm doing it. I'm not going to try to use my cleverness and all my intellectual machinations to try to understand something. Well, what happened to the golden calf? The golden calf people, they made all these calculations of why this is proper. And here we're told, no calculations work. Just do it because God wants you to do it. And therefore, you uh, are able to fix that flaw. And, and here we're told, in this kind of very deep uh, way, that there's this connection between the red heifer and... Uh, and the golden calf, and I think a simple way to understand it is golden calf, that was, it had a, uh, a measure of idolatry to it, it brought death back to the world, it corrupted the people, and the red heifer is the opposite. It's, it's total faith, it's undoing death, it's a remedy for death, and it indeed represents what the objective of all Torah is to create that same transformation within us. And I think that's a way for us, you know, whenever we read these laws that, A, are not relevant to us today, we don't have a temple, we can't do this, but also even when the temple was around, it doesn't really seem to, we don't seem to connect to it. I think it's a good way to look at it that way, to understand just the context and even the broad strokes of the ideas, it gives us, I think, a deep insight into them. Now, Moshe tells Elazar the son of Aaron, to participate in this. Verse number three. And we know, this week's Parsha, Aaron's going to die. Spoiler alert. Uh, and Miriam as well. But Aaron is still extant at this time. So why, if we need a Kohen, why is it not, why don't we look to Aaron? You know, is why we go to the son. So Rashi tells us that Aaron, if you remember, he played a role in the golden calf. And therefore, because he was part of that, we don't want him anywhere near the remedy to that. And it's sort of similar in a way to what we're told in the book of Yoma. The book of Yoma describes the process of Yom Kippur in the temple. It was the only time that the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, would go into the Holy of Holies. And he would go in there multiple times. But if you read the description of the process, he's changing his clothing many, many times. He goes from gold clothing, which is the famous clothing the 12 uh, garments of the Kohen Gadol, and then he has this alternate uniform, the white clothing. Every time he walks into the Holy of Holies, he takes off all the special, unique golden garments and replaces them with the more simple white ones. And the idea is the same as this one. 
whenever you have something that in any way evokes the golden calf, you don't want it anywhere near a process of repentance. And of course, Aaron was really righteous. Aaron was one of the great heroes. But still, because Aaron in some way was participatory in that sin, we draw it al Because gold was the golden calf, we don't want gold anywhere near the Holy of Holies on the day we're trying to get atonement. An interesting idea. Another interesting thing here in verse number 10, uh, where it describes the fact that you take the big tree, the small tree, and you mix it all together. So Rashi tells us the reason why you take the big tree and the small tree uh, is that the sinner has really high pride, and in order to atone for that, you have to lower yourself. And this is an idea that's found every, um, elsewhere in uh, Jewish sources, that actually you could trace the origin of any sin to pride and arrogance, haughtiness. It's an interesting idea that if a person would, was entirely free of any shred of pride and was totally humble, it's very likely they would never, they wouldn't be, it wouldn't be possible for them to sin. It's an interesting idea that, uh, of course, demands uh, uh, rumination to understand that. But really, if you, if you examine, like we talked about last week, that you could zoom in into actions and understand what the underlying causes of those actions are, here we're told that the underlying cause of any sin can be traced back to, uh, to pride. Interesting idea. Verse 14, I just want to share with you another Talmud. Uh, this is the verse we mentioned earlier. I want to read to you the way it's described. This is the Torah, a man who dies in a tent. Now, of course, it's talking about someone who dies and there's impurity. But if you just read those sentences, this is a Torah, a man who dies in a tent, uh, the, the, the Talmud homiletically understands this, that what is Torah? How do you acquire Torah? This is Torah? If you die in a tent. If you dedicate yourself in a tent of scholarship. Interesting uh, idea that there's a certain degree of commitment that's needed for someone to understand Torah completely, they need to, so to speak, kill themselves, to, to lose a little bit of their own identity, and to become a clean slate, to be able to absorb what Torah is, you have to kind of reduce, so to speak, your preconceived notions. You can't come to Torah and say, this is what I think, let's see how Torah fits into my understanding. You have to kind of kill yourself, <laughs> not, you have to kill yourself, but not, not literally, of course, it shouldn't be necessary to say, but you have to come as if there's nothing there, as if there's nothing there, and now you want to say, okay, what's the Torah, and how does it work, and really form yourself as a result of that. And another important idea we've seen elsewhere, but we see it over here as well. So we finish the description of the uh, red heifer, and we move on to chapter 20, and this is the death of Miriam. Miriam is Moshe's oldest sister, she has had a few appearances in the Torah so far. Of course, the first appearance uh, in the actual text of the Torah was, was when Moshe was a little baby in a box. She was watching him. Uh, again, she appeared after the splitting of the sea and the great song. So Miriam, the prophetess, she led the women in song. And further, we had an appearance a couple weeks ago where Miriam had the... Uh, episode where she got Saras speaking negatively about her brother.
but she dies. And she dies in, uh, they move to Midbar Tzin, and they're in a place called Kadesh, and Miriam died and she's buried. And immediately the next verse, there's no water. And everyone gains up in Moshe and Aaron. So, firstly, there's two juxtapositions here that I think it's worthy of mentioning. Firstly, what is the fact that Miriam died, how is it related to the preceding section? Um, we talked about purification, atonement of the red heifer, and now we have the death of Miriam. So Rashi says it's really surprising from the Talmud that the reason why they're put next to each other is because just as sacrifices, like the red heifer, it provides atonement, so too the death of tzaddikim provides atonement. When a tzaddik, when a righteous person dies, that is equivalent to the red heifer, it provides atonement for the people. Just a, kind of a straight, what, what should the death of a tzaddik have to do with atonement? So I, I think it's important for us here to just stress one point. The Talmud tells us that there's 903 different kinds of death. And we know death is separation of body and soul. That we know. Um, but what is the bondage? What is the linkage of body and soul? And if you want to understand what death is, you have to first understand, well, what is the body and soul? How are the body and soul fused? And only once you understand how they're fused, could you understand how they're unfused. Well, only once you understand, only once you understand they're, how they're bound, can you understand how they're unbound. The Alma says there's 903 levels of death because there's 903 levels of connection between body and soul. And therefore, if body and soul are connected in 903 ways, well, then to undo that, it's, so to speak, to undo, this is a simplification, of course, but to undo 903 different links between body and soul, it's a much more complicated process. Whereas if they're not connected at all, it's a much more seamless process. And as an aside, if you've ever heard the term misas neshika, death by a kiss, that terminology, uh, that's referring to the best kind of death. What it means is just like the soul was blasted into Adam's mouth and there was no friction, so to speak, for it to be undone in a way where there's no friction whatsoever, that's like a kiss. It's just blown out, so to speak, from the mouth. But regardless, here we're told that there's a, a death is a spiritual experience. It could be a really bad spiritual experience if it's very cumbersome to undo. There's, not, there's, there's so much of body and soul intermeshing. The person didn't assure that the body and soul remain separate. Well, then it's a, it's a spiritual process, but it's a laborious, arduous one. Whereas if it is a very seamless death, and it's just the soul going back to its roots and the body going back to its roots. That's a very kind of lofty spiritual experience. Here we're told that when a tzaddik dies, a tzaddik on that level, this lofty spiritual experience actually flows over and provides atonement for the nation. Really interesting idea um, that we're told in the, in the Talmud. So now Miriam dies and... There's no water. So what's the connection between that? And how do they have water till now? So what they had was called the Be'er Miriam. They had a, they had a spring that followed them wherever they went. 
It's called the spring of Miriam. And when she died, it's, it ceased. It only existed in her merit. And therefore, the second she died, it dries up. Where it went to is a great question. Uh, we'll see in the end of the Parsha, it describes that it went to the Sea of the Galilee in northern Israel and buried itself this same spring. It didn't dry up, it just dried up functionally, and it went and it buried itself in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And then the Arizal, Rabbi Isaac Luria, he went on a boat in the Sea of the Galilee with a student, Rabbi Chaim Vital. These names are the critical personalities of the 16th century, uh, the Kabbalists in Svat, which is right next to the Sea of the Galilee, they went in a boat and they went right to the middle of the Sea of the Galilee and because the reason knew exactly where the Miriam's, uh, where her spring was still there, was still present and he takes a cup of water and he scoops up some of the water and he gives it to a student to drink. And he says, this is the drink, this is the, this is the same water they drink in the, in the wilderness. You drink it, and the wellsprings of knowledge and Torah will open. And then my grandfather says a story. He once went to Tveria, to Tiberias, and he was asking everyone, does anyone know where the bear Miriam, where the spring of Miriam is buried? Because he really, really wanted to have a drink from it, and no one knew. Uh, but it, regardless, everyone's thirsty. So they start complaining, uh, and they tell, they tell Moshe, if only we had died already, why'd you bring us to this place, us and our animals, we're all going to die, we're still in the wilderness, you promised us a place of flowing milk and honey, and now we don't even have water. And that seems like a reasonable request. It doesn't, see, doesn't seem like the people are punished for it. Uh, and here... God tells Moshe, this is the famous episode of Moshe hitting the rock. Tells Moshe, take your staff, gather the nation, you and Aaron, your brother, speak to the salad, speak to this rock before everyone, and it will give us water. I'll make a miracle. The water will come out of the rock. And it will give, uh, it, will, it will drink for the nation and for their animals. Right? God says, I care even about the animals of of the people. So Moshe takes the staff. So if you actually look at the instruction, it seems like there's contradictory instructions. They take a staff. All the way back in Exodus, Moshe was told, take a staff and hit the rock, and water will be emitted. Here he's told, take a staff, which seems to imply go hit the rock instead, but he also was told, go speak to the rock. So Moshe goes and takes his staff, and like he was instructed, and they gather all the people around. And Moshe tells them, Here, rebels, will this rock, will it emit water? And he picks up his staff, and he hits the rock twice, and water, a lot of water comes out, enough water for the whole nation. That's the story. And immediately the consequences come, and the Almighty says to Moshe and Aaron, because you don't believe in me, you don't sanctify me before the eyes of everyone, therefore you too shall not enter the land of Israel. And that's it. Verse lays it down in verse uh, 12. And these are refers to the waters of strife where they fought 
uh, they fought with God. Fine. And God sanctified with them. So this is one of the kind of more strange episodes in the Torah to understand, or more difficult episodes to understand. To say that Moshe and Aaron don't have faith in God, don't believe, don't have emuna. Yan You don't have emuna in God. Well, if Moshe and Aaron don't have emuna in God, how can anyone else even strive to have emuna? What this demonstrates is that there's various. There's a there's a slope. There's gradients of emuna. Emuna itself is recognition of God. Unless you are God Himself, you cannot have total recognition of God. And what Moshe and Aaron are told, these are the greatest people perhaps that have ever lived with regards to their concept of Amuna, but even they, their sins are in that realm. But what, what's the meaning behind this sin? Why, uh, what is, what do they do so wrong? God tells them, you didn't, you didn't sanctify me. It is still pretty cool that they gave water for the whole nation. It's still, water coming out of a rock in itself is a miracle of uh, pretty epic proportions, don't you think? So how does God tell Moshe and Aaron, well, you could have, you could have impressed the people, you could have given them uh, a reason to sanctify God, but you didn't, you failed. So, of course, this is one of the kind of hard philosophical sections of the Torah to understand, and everyone has their way of understanding it. So Rashi, for example, says simply, they should have spoken to the rock, and they did it, and they hit it. Actually, Rashi tells, he hits it twice, you notice, right? Mm-hmm. Why does he hit it twice? Because initially, Moshe spoke to the rock. Problem was, he spoke to the wrong rock. And the rock didn't give any water. So he figured, oh, must be that God told me to take the staff. God says, take the staff and go hit the rock. So he hit the rock once, and only a little trickle came out. So he decided, you know what, I'll hit it again. And he hits it again, and then the water starts gushing uh, with enough enough water to give for the whole nation. But Rashi says, quite simply, this is a way of... uh, God wanted a certain kind of miracle, the miracle of the water being emitted by speech. Instead, Moshe gave him a different miracle, water being emitted by hitting. That's what Rashi says. And of course, the Ramban, as he is wont to do, uh, he asks on Rashi, well, if that was the sin, and God wanted Moshe to speak, well, why did God tell him to take the staff? God seems to be leading him astray. Uh, but additionally, Ramban asked, wait a minute, isn't it, uh, isn't it a sufficient miracle to say that water came out of a rock? I don't care how it came out, but it did come out of a rock, enough water for a whole nation? That's pretty impressive as well. And obviously, you have to understand, this is, Moshe is being judged clearly on his level. He's held, to, he's held to a much higher standard. If any one of us would have been privy to this miracle, we would have been wowed forever, right? And if any one of us could have imparted this miracle to everyone, then how much greater would that be? But Moshe is held to a much higher standard, and he's judged with very little, if no, uh, wiggle room. And therefore, if he could have done it even slightly better, he is held uh, accountable for that. But I think the fact, when it says he doesn't have faith, what I think the, the Torah is telling us is that every sin is rooted in a lack of faith. There's basic rudimentary faith, and then there's advanced faith. 
the basic rudimentary faith is what we call faith, or uh, certainly what Moshe had. No one's saying that Moshe didn't believe in God. But it does say Moshe didn't believe in God. It means that there's a, a more advanced level of emuna that Mo, even Moshe didn't have, or even Moshe in this episode didn't have. Moshe's, you see Moshe's kind of using some of his own faculties when he, at that go against what God told him, okay, well, where's your faith? I'm your level. So the, Ram, the Rambam in, um, the Rambam here, that should bring it down over here, but the Rambam in Shemona Prakram, which, if you're interested to know, the Rambam in his book, Commentary Mishnah, the Rambam was the first one to write a commentary in all 63 books of Mishnah. He did that as a teenager. Um, and he has an introduction to the chapters of the Fathers called Shemona Prakram, which, which means eight chapters. And in it, he talks a lot about the nature of the soul, a lot of kind of really intense philosophical issues. And in there, he mentions that the mistake, his philosophy, his perspective is that the mistake that Moshe and Aaron did was they got angry. They, they started labeling the people rebels. And he goes a step further by saying that the real mistake was that the people looked at Moshe as a conduit of God. He didn't give any of his own commentary. He didn't add any of his own perspective on a given issue. And therefore, when Moshe says to the people, you're rebels, God didn't tell Moshe, tell the people you're rebels. Moshe's own commentary is on display. And therefore, that caused the people to have a mistake in understanding what God thought, because they saw Moshe saying there were rebels. People saw, well, must be God says we're rebels. And therefore, Moshe, so to speak, led the Jewish people into a, a, a mistaken understanding of God, and that is his mistake. That's what Ramban, very, very kind of elaborate explanation, uh, but an elaborate explanation, it seems like, is needed. Okay, that's just uh, this story. And by the way, Moshe is going to do everything he can to try to undo this. Moshe is going to spend the rest of his life trying to find a way to pray and be granted atonement and be and have this decree undone. We'll see more about that in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, now, you look at the end of verse 13, it says that God was sanctified through these waters. So it seems like almost a direct contradiction to verse 12. Verse 12 says, God tells Moshe and Aaron, you didn't sanctify me. You could have spoken to the, wa- to the water, instead to the rock, instead you hit the rock. You could have sanctified me, you didn't. Verse 13 says the exact opposite. It says, these are the waters of strife, the children of Israel contended with Hashem, and he was sanctified through them. So is God being sanctified? Is God not being sanctified? So the answer is like this. In verse 12, the lack of sanctification is in the episode of this Mamariva, the waters of strife. Moshe could have hit, spoken to the rock, instead he hit the rock, therefore God was not sanctified. Verse 13 is not talking about the episode of the rock, it's talking about the consequences of the rock where Moshe and Aaron were punished for what you and I and anyone, any onlooker would say, that's a very minor sin. But even Moshe and Aaron, greatest people around, leaders of the nation, if they're punished 
for such minor sins, what about us? We're not as great as Moshe and Aaron, and our sins are much worse than the sins of Moshe and Aaron. We better be careful that we don't, or we try to avoid sin as much as possible, because if God is exacting retribution for a more minor sin to great people, how much more so is going to exact retribution for a more major sin to not such great people? And therefore, ironically, with the punishment of giants like Moshe and Aaron, there's actually a very powerful lesson for the common folk to make sure that they repent and they rectify their deeds. Okay, so the rest of the parsha is going to talk about uh, the various efforts of diplomacy uh, that uh, weren't very successful, we could safely say, of Moshe to try to get closer to the land. So they've been traveling. If you want to look at the back of some editions of the Torah, uh, the new modern editions, I don't know if this one has or not, but they have pictures of all the different um, encampments of the people along uh, the Sinai Desert and then all around in the eastern bank of the Jordan River. Uh, because what the people did, the, the, the way they... Instead of going due north, straight into Israel from Egypt, they went all around Sinai, and then they went on the other side of the Red uh, of the Red Sea, and then they went all the way around through uh, the eastern side, through what today is Jordan, or the Heshmite Kingdom of Transjordan, to be precise. Um, and now there's a few major empires on the eastern bank of the Jordan River. That, the, that Moshe is going to try to have some diplomacy to, to try to get through. We don't want to fight with you. We don't want to have any issues with you. We just want to get to the Jordan River to cross into Israel. We'll deal with the battles in Israel once we get there. Uh, but uh, the, those nations were not very amenable to these terms, and there were some wars. So let's go through them over here. Um, so first, Moshe sends messengers to the king of Edom. Edom is, these are descendants of Esau. And he tells him, you know everything that happens to us. We were in Egypt, we were slaves, and we were there for a long time, and they mistreated us, and we prayed to Hashem, and Hashem heard our prayers, and Hashem sent an angel to save us. And now we're at the edge of your field. Let us pass through. We're not going to pass through a field or a vineyard. We're not going to steal. We're not going to drink from your water, we're going to go, we're going to pay for everything we touch, we're not going to go veer right and left, we're not going to conquer, we're just going to use it to get through to our ultimate destination. And they respond in classic uh, Esauian fashion, verse 18, don't pass through me, lest I come against you with a sword. So you'll notice there's, a, there's, there's kind of an undertone in this back and forth. First of all, what does Moshe What's the message that Moshe sends to them? We cried out to Hashem, and we prayed, and Hashem saved us. He's clearly not talking to Edom on Edom's common uh, parlance. He's talking to Esau, so to speak, as Jacob. Uh, if you remember all the way back in Genesis, we had this statement from Isaac when Jacob is impersonating his brother, Isaac tells him, the hands are the hands of Esau. He feels his hands. The hands are the hands of Esau, but the voice is the voice of Jacob. 
And this is, uh, became like a, a way of, of labeling Jacob. Jacob is with the voice. The power of Jacob is the power of prayer, whereas the power of Esau is the power of his, of his hands, of, of violence. So when these two are meeting again, the descendants of Jacob are, are coming in, into contact with the descendants of Esau, with the descendants of Esau in the in Edom. What does Jacob do? He doesn't once again masquerade as Esau and start threatening violence. He reverts entirely back to Jacob and says, we prayed to God and God helped us and all that. It's an interesting idea that we're not encouraged to change our national character to make it more agreeable. It means we're at our strongest when we know what we stand for. The second we try to adopt the ways of Esau, we lose what's unique about us. And if we're not unique, why do we have a reason to exist? So we say, we're sticking to Jacob. We're prayers. We're prayers. And we want to come through peacefully. And what does Esau respond? Right away with a sword in classic Esau fashion. And again, the people... Uh, the Jews tell them, no, we're not going to, we're not going to, uh, we're going to pass through the land. Uh, we're going to go on the, on the highway. If we drink your water, we'll pay for it. By the way, an interesting lesson we learned from that. We know the people have this traveling rock with them, right? We just went through that seconds ago, that they have, they have water. So why are they offering to pay for water? So it's the kind of thing where you go to use the gas station, use the bathroom, you should buy a bottle of water, even though you have water in the car. You know, if you're coming to use someone's, it's appropriate, it's like Derek Heretz. If you're using someone else's, if you're driving through someone else's place and they're doing a favor for you, it's proper to spend some money as well. You know, like we, like you, we, we always do this when we travel to Canada. Every time you stop at a gas station, you go use the bathroom and you, know, you always buy something. You know, it's not, it's not proper to go there and to use someone else's stuff for free and not to, even if you don't need it, it's that that's the right thing to do. Um, and again, they respond. Uh, they are not, uh, we're, we're not agreeing to this. They came out with a show of force. They roll out the tanks. And they don't allow the Jewish people to go. So the Jewish people travel in a different way. They go further south. And uh, they go and stop in Mount Hor. Or Mount Hor. Har Hor. Hor Har. And... Uh, on this mountain, which is uh, way further south, God tells Moshe and Aaron, go climb up the mountain. Aaron's going to die. They climb up the mountain. Aaron and Elazar and Moshe. Aaron is stripped of his priestly vestments and is uh, he takes them off him, places them on his son. He anoints his son as his successor and he dies <laughs> And he dies over there. Moshe is going to be actually sort of envious later on the fact that Aaron merited having, uh, being able to convey his stature to his son, whereas Moshe was not going to have that same merit. He's not going to, his successor is going to be not his son, but his student, his student, uh, Joshua. And, uh, importantly, uh, when Aaron dies, the whole nation sees that, 
and they cry over Aaron, they mourn Aaron for 30 days. And if you'll notice here, everyone seems to be very disappointed that Aaron dies, and they all, they all cry for 30 days. Um, when Moshe dies, they don't cry as intensely. And here's where we're told that Aaron, his, his, his characteristic was being a peacemaker. And whenever two people were in a fight, he would have these, he, he had a whole philosophy of how to create peace between two warring factions. He would, um, he would go to one guy and tell him, oh, this friend of yours, he, he's, so, he's so disappointed of this fight, he really wants to make peace, but he doesn't know how to do it. And then he'd go to the other guy and tell him the same thing. And each one of them hears that his friend is remorseful and really wants to make peace. When they would meet, they just make peace naturally. And Aaron would kind of really think really hard, how do I, make, how do I restore peace uh, uh, amongst the nation between husband and wife and uh, different uh, friends and colleagues? Uh, in the chapters of the fathers, we're told about Aaron. He is Ohev Shalom. He loves peace. Rodev Shalom. He, he pursues peace. Ohev Sabrios. He loves people and brings them close to Torah. And because Aaron was such a peacemaker amongst the nation, uh, therefore everyone really appreciated uh, his, his greatness and everyone was so disappointed they mourned. A whole nation was mourning for 30 days when he died. Now, chapter 21 describes the next encounter. Uh, the Canaanites, they start attacking in the south. They attack the Jewish people. And they're successful to um, take a captive from the people. Now, first of all, if you remember back, most people probably didn't pay attention to this, but back when we talked about the uh, about the spies, we mentioned that the nation in the south of Israel, that's the Amaleks. Here we're talking about going into the south, and the Canaanites are attacking them. So who's in the south of Israel? Is the Canaanites or the Amalekites? Well, the answer is it's the Amalekites. But the Amalekites, they impersonated the Canaanites. They started talking like Canaanites, and they attacked and the attack was marginally successful. They took a captive. How many captives? One captive. But the reason why they were successful is because when the people saw a bunch of Canaanites attacking, they prayed to God, and they said, God, save us from these crazy Canaanites. But the truth is, they weren't Canaanites, they were Amalekites. And what the Amalekites did is they, when they were masquerading as Canaanites, they were able to redirect the prayer Against the Canaanites, they weren't only praying against Amalekites, and therefore they had a window to attack, and they were marginally successful. An interesting idea we're told from here that whenever you pray, you have to know exactly what you're praying for. It's almost like an example that was given that you want to you want to go to a website, whichever website you want to go to. I may advise you if you want to check out a really wonderful website, RabbiWolby.com. <laughs> check it out. Just as an example, actually, the only one I can think of. So, if you do Rabbi Wolby, and instead of making a dot com, you do even a little comma. What's the difference between a comma and a dot? My goodness, it's a tiny, it's a few pixels on the screen, no difference. But you won't get anywhere. You won't get. You won't get to your destination. 
Because in order to do it, you have to do it precisely the way it is. There's, a, there's an exact formula of how to reach a website. You do it even slightly off, you don't get the destination. Similarly to prayer, you want to pray, you have to do it exactly the way you intend. If you pray f- to be successful against Canaanites, you'll be successful against Canaanites if God accepts your prayer. But the Amalites, well, they're different people. And the Amalites knew that, and therefore they said, you know what? Before they realized there were Amalekites, let's dress up as Canaanites, they'll pray for that, and they won't hit their target. Which is why, for example, when you, whenever you pray uh, for a sick person in the, in, in the shul or whatever, they always want to know their name. And they want to know their precise name, the full Hebrew name, and the full Hebrew name of their mother. And it doesn't matter if it's Joseph or is it uh, Jacob. Does it, does it matter? Yeah, it does. You're, you're trying to reach a website, an address. Does it matter? Of course it matters. And therefore here, this is the idea that to, to know exactly what you're asking for and to ask exactly for, for what you want and to spell it out. And another important takeaway from this is that, you know, we sometimes feel constricted with a pre-existing prayer text. You know, this is a prayer text that's been part of the Jewish people for 2,500 years. And we feel like it's kind of you're trying to shoehorn yourself into a text that doesn't feel natural. But we have to realize that the people that came up with this text, they were the experts at knowing exactly how to achieve a certain goal with prayer. And the exact words they use are the perfect formula to achieve that goal. And therefore, they did the hard work for you. If you had to pray on your own, what would you say? And how would you know how to say everything that, that you need in order to be, to be, to flourish, to be successful in every area? They took out the guesswork and they gave you these exact words, say these exact words, and your prayer will be successful to achieve all the needs. Uh, unfortunately, there was uh, a mishap in this war and there was a captive. There was no casualties, but there was a captive. Who was this captive? So, uh, the Midrash tells us that this was one, uh, Maid servant, she was she was captured, and it's interesting that you know you think about a war and a war. There's casualties. If there's one casualty, it really doesn't register. You know when when Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin were planning their attack against the Nazis, Stalin had there there was one proposal that the generals had presented that would result in a half a million soldiers dying, according to their estimates. Stalin's like, sure, well, let's do it. With, he was so callous as uh, uh, the Russian army in World War II was to the death of soldiers. And both Churchill and Roosevelt were streaming him. Like, How could you talk about that, that half a million soldiers dying? You're talking about that like they're flies. And you know, I remember in 2009, when there was the first crisis with the Iranian nukes, they have a nuke, they're getting a nuke in a half hour or in two months. I remember the defense minister of Israel at the time, a fellow by the name of Ehud Barak, also former prime minister, he estimated that within a nuclear war with, with Iran, there'll be about 500 Jewish casualties, Israeli casualties. No big deal, but we'd have much more casualties. No big deal? Here, there's one casualty, not even dead, captive, and we make a big deal. We have a whole verse in the Torah to describe it. 
Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't assume that there's casualties. Casualties is a really bad thing, especially the nation. We're living with God in such proximity, and therefore we have zero tolerance for casualties, and there's no like allowance. There's no tolerable amount of people dying in war. Um, okay, so the people, they, start, they redirect their prayer. Uh, they start praying about this nation, so they leave it more open-ended. And they were successful, and they captured that land. They renamed it Harama. They start making a circular trip around the land of Edom. Again, this is a long trip. The people get frustrated with the manna. They complain about the manna again. You have this uh, episode with the serpents. God is fed up with the people complaining about the manna. Sends a, sends a, uh, sends a bunch of, of snakes to attack them. People are dying. God tells Moshe, I want you to make this uh, brass pole with a serpent around it. Every time people get bitten, they look at it, and they'll be healed. Says the Talmud, very famous Talmud, does a snake kill, or does a snake give life? When a snake bites someone, injects some venom in it, well, the person could die. But why do they die? Because God says when a snake bites someone and injects venom, they die. Similarly, when the people look at the pole that has the snake on it, they get healed. It's also because God wants them to heal their prey and they'll, they'll be healed. Uh, and they, um, verse 10, they start traveling to a place called Avos. They are facing Moab, and there's, uh, they're by the, they're, they're going back up, up north, uh, on the eastern bank. And, uh, they first encamp by this, uh, river, the, the river called Zared. They, uh, head further north to the, uh, boundary of the Amores. And then we have the interjection of this, uh, amazing book of, uh, amazing song of the wars of Hashem. And finally, the, fir- the, the Parsha ends with a battle between Sihon, the king of Amor, and uh, Og, the king of Bashan. And um, kind of hidden in the story is a great miracle. As the people are traveling north, they go between these two mountains, these two cliffs. And the Amorites, they had planned a uh, secret attack uh, launched from the heights, from the caves in those mountains, in those, uh, in those cliffs. They were going to throw boulders and shoot arrows at the vulnerable nation below them. But they might have made a miracle that these two cliffs, they temporarily went together. And therefore, all the people that were hiding inside those cliffs were crushed to death. And as a result, they have this miracle, this song of, of this miracle in verse 14 uh, to 20. But regardless, there was a very successful war with Sichon, the king of Amor, and Od Malachabashan, and essentially uh, they conquer the eastern bank of the Jordan River, and the Parsha ends where the Jewish people are on the doorstep of the Jordan in the plains of Moab, they have not yet battled with Moab quite yet. That's Natchmich Parsha. But the uh, two twin powers, uh, 
of the east side of the Jordan River, Sichon and Og, the king of Emor, the king of Bashan, they have been vanquished. Uh, next week, we're going to learn about Balak, the king of Moab. That's the other kingdom there. He feels very vulnerable. He recognizes that through conventional warfare, the Jewish people are, uh, are um, unconquerable. They can't be defeated through conventional warfare. And therefore, he's going to try to use some unconventional warfare, uh, some uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction of a spiritual origin to try to find a way to grapple with this formidable enemy, the Jewish people. Uh, unfortunately, it's not going to go quite as planned as we'll see next week.